thought I want to just introduce myself briefly. I, there's so many of you here that I don't know and who therefore don't know me. Um, I just began practicing Vipassana in the early days, even before IMS and in the early days of IMS, and then went on to do Zen practice. And in those early years of practice, I was a single mom and I honestly went to either a Zen retreat or a Vipassana retreat, depending on when I had childcare and vacation from work. So uh, then in 1979, my heart Zen teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi, moved to Cambridge to about five minutes from where I lived. And I practiced with her until 1990 when she died. And after a couple of years, came back to IMS and practiced with Joseph and Sharon. And that's how I happened to <clears throat> find myself here in this predicament. Um, <laughs> trying not to cough and hoping I can say something helpful to you in your retreat. Um, so I want to talk tonight about mindfulness of the breath. But first, just to tell you a quick story. This is the third night of retreat, second full day. And just remembering going to Zen retreats, I was sitting one retreat with a very strict Rinzai Zen master named Suzaki Roshi. And on the third day of the retreat, and we used to have to meet with him several times a day, actually. And... I mean, sometimes it felt like a privilege, and sometimes it felt like a real have-to. And on that third day, I had a question. I went in for my interview, and I asked my question. And he drew back in horror. And he looked at me with complete disdain. And he curled his lip, and he said, Still thinking? <laughs> so... Um, this is, of course, no commentary on what's going on with you, and by tomorrow, I'm sure, it will have all died down. But just in case you're like me, um, I'll talk to you about being mindful of the breath and how to stay with and connect to this movement and flow of the breath and how doing that actually connects us to so many truths of life um, and also to offer you some practical ways of deepening your concentration with the breath. And so you'll see for yourself how, just how much dharmic truth is revealed in doing this simple practice. Simple to say, not so simple to do. So the breath is our lifelong companion. We're never without it. Until the very last breath in and the very last breath out. Until then, we're really constantly accompanied by our breath. And we're never abandoned by our breath or left alone, except when we ourselves get lost in thought or uh, disconnected. And it's a kind of lonely feeling. We can feel it here in retreat, that loneliness of thought being sort of encapsulated in our own world of thinking versus the intimacy of being present and connected with the breath. This is a quote from the writer Anais Nin. She says, 
I'm always between two worlds, always in conflict. I would like sometimes to rest, to be at peace, to choose a nook, to make a final choice, but I can't. Some nameless, indescribable fear and anxiety keeps me on the move. On certain evenings like this, I would like to feel whole. Only half of me is sitting by the fire. Only my hands are sewing. So this evening, how much of you is sitting? How much of you is breathing? This breath is immediately accessible to us, always changing, moving, ebbing, flowing, this life energy, prana, breath. And it's really one of the best ways for us to use the ingredients at hand, the ingredients at hand in our practice to concentrate the mind, to strengthen and cultivate the power of attention, the power of the mind to attend and to focus, to see and observe. It's ultra simple. There's a saying in Zen, an eight-year-old can understand it but an 80-year-old cannot do it. It's, uh, it can take us to the highest levels of absorption, of jhana, of samadhi, but that's not really our purpose here. Our purpose is mindfulness, that no matter how we may feel about our breath or any experience that we're having, actually, our walking, here our job is to allow it to be so, to Just let it be as it is in the openness of mind and heart. Not to try and change or control it. To see it and let it be. Knowing what's here, seeing and being aware with great tenderness and compassion. How do we do this? There's a Zen story from Tawi, a Rinzai master who lived in the first half of the 12th century. In the old days, Huishang asked, I like this name, Lazy An, what work do you do during the 24 hours of the day? Lazy An said, I tend an ox. Of course, this is Zen code. Huishang said, so how do you tend it? Lazy An said, whenever it gets into the grass, I pull it back by the nose. Kuishan said, you're really tending that ox. Sometimes being mindful and um, returning to mindfulness of the breath when we're lost in discursive thoughts is about as easy as steering or trying to turn around an ocean liner. Your mind feels about as willing as a great, big, huge ox headed for a tall, juicy stand of grass. The grass being any patch of delightful fantasies, of um, lustful, angry, sad thoughts, whatever kind of juicy thing, drama we're involved in, the grass here means any way that the mind proliferates into papancha, proliferates into branching associations of 
thought um, during our meditation, our sitting, our walking, our working. So Tawi is describing how to take good care of our ox and how to practice here, asking us to pay attention carefully all day, all night, every hour, every minute, breath by breath. Being present as many moments as we can. How many moments of mindfulness can we link together, string together, and notice in a row? The Buddha talked about filling a bucket, drop by drop. And we can stand and sit and walk and lie down right next to this bucket. And we can imagine it filling with metta and with mindfulness, drop by drop. As long as we don't check it and keep looking inside. Is it empty? Is it full? How full is it getting? But just listening to the raindrops when it's raining, to the flow of the breath. Even if each breath is just full of feelings that you would never choose or invite or want to be having. With mindfulness, everything is of equal importance. It's not dependent on your experience being awesome or horrible. And I think that's part of why we're always singing the praises of mindfulness. Because it can go anywhere. And mindfulness isn't made better or worse by association with its object. Mindfulness is being present with the object of attention. And it means this kind of... um, When we're mindful and attentive, We're not wobbling. We're not floating away from what's happening. We're committed, steady, unconfused. I think that's why it's a form of love, as Gil and Marie were saying. We surrender to the complete simplicity of this practice. It's like a mirror, just reflecting what's happening with a kind of uh, recognition that is completely non-conceptual, just immediate knowing, so present. All the ways of being mindful are ways that the Buddha asks us to be true to our own hearts and minds, so uncompromisingly true. Mindfulness is a form of honesty, of telling ourselves the truth about what's happening. It's showing us that when we're present with the breath, that the breath is not just our companion, it's our Dharma friend, it's our teacher. Because when we're not present, we can see what gets in the way, what it is that um, draws us somewhere else, And this, too, is equally valuable, just to see where we've gone. As long as we're noticing, we're doing something so valuable on our spiritual path. And for those of you who are at the beginning of your retreat, 
it's sometimes easy to lose heart. It's so important to remember this, what Marie pointed out this morning, that the very moment of noticing that we're lost in thought, that we're off somewhere, that we're nowhere near the breath, that moment is a moment of mindful awareness and is a moment to be celebrated. And that movement back to connection, that is the cultivating the strengthening of attention, of mindfulness. So we're in this rhythm, this dance of connection and disconnection, returning to connection. And then how do we stay connected through the disconnections? By not being so dismayed and by understanding that By using the breath as our anchor, we learn all about the various currents of thoughts and feeling, our patterns of reactivity and turmoil. So that even if we're not able to stay with the breath, little by little, or sometimes in a flash of insight, we're becoming aware of all this. And we keep the breath as our rudder, as our reference point. Not evaluating our success or failure by what's actually a kind of crude measure. You know, am I with it or not? Um, But by our willingness to allow it to be as it is and to get to know ourselves through our breathing. My teacher, Koben Chino Roshi, said he always knew the condition of his students by the quality of their breathing. He would know what kind of emotion we were having just by the um, flow of the breath. And by now, you yourself, you all know, you've seen that connection, how when the mind is agitated, the breath gets more choppy or short, and how the breath can calm the body and the mind and then the mind can calm the breath. So I want to offer you some practical ways to approach this, Um, particularly, again, if you've just arrived in the retreat. There can be a lot of intensity of expectation riding on this retreat. And sometimes it's been a whole year or even more of planning to be able to come here. And that intensity of expectation can actually um, cause you to sometimes press too hard and lose the happiness of being here. So here are some ways. The first way is to just have some gratitude for being alive, for being here. This is a quote from Soan Nakagawa Roshi. To get this chance to practice the Dharma is very difficult. To be born as a human being is very difficult. Among uncountable sperms and eggs, you are here. Wonderful chance. Congratulations. (laughs) So that's the first way. Just... Um, congratulating ourselves on this precious human birth by appreciating it, not taking the breath for granted, not objectifying and thingifying it. 
Another way is to receive the breath, to actually take uh, a step back into receptivity. And you can do that right now, just by, um, just for a moment, you can just quiet down, I'm speaking to myself. And even if you move your body just an eighth of an inch back, just slightly back, there's an attitude of receiving the moment, of receiving each breath. And this attitude of receptivity makes room for being present with each breath in and each breath out. Another way is to notice the beginning of each breath, the moment of it arising. To really be with the beginning of each in-breath, of each out-breath. To notice the middle of each breath and see if we can sustain that connection. And then the end of the breath particularly the end of the out-breath, is kind of often the place where um, we kind of take off into a story, thinking about something, seeing if we can stay with this breath, particularly this out-breath, all the way to the end. And just now, doing that, noticing the beginning, the middle, the end. And as you practice this way, you'll notice there's a pause. It's subtle, sometimes more noticeable than others, depending on the rhythm of your breathing. But there's a pause at the end of the breath, and in that pause is some stillness where one breath ends and the other breath begins. And we can kind of unlink them one from the other. Another way is to make a light mental note, as Gil was suggesting. Maybe the note of rising, lifting, falling. Mental noting is so interesting. When we make a mental note, whatever we're noting, we're not lost anymore. I remember going for an interview in a retreat with Upandita and saying, I'm so lost. And of course, if those of you who know this way of practice, you can guess the question. Did you note it? Did you note being lost? Well, of course I didn't, because if I had noted it, I wouldn't have been lost. So making a mental note is um, really helpful. Another way is developing interest in the breath. This is a quote from Paul Reps, and this is about interest. He says, This is the law. No sames 
No same leaves, pebbles, persons, places, trees, grasses. We could add breaths, sittings, walking periods, days of retreat. No sames. Whoever disobeys this law gets bored. (laughs) Another way of generating interest in the breath is... Um, this is from Thich Nhat Hanh. It's called The True Secret of Mindfulness. And I think this is a really great way of generating interest. A student asked, it was an American student, asked Thich Nhat Hanh how she could maintain mindfulness in her daily work and how she could be more mindful in general. Do you want to know my secret? replied Thich Nhat Hanh with a smile. I try to find the way to do things that is most pleasurable. There may be many ways to perform a given task, but the one that holds my attention best is the one that is most pleasant. So feel free to find out how you best enjoy your breath. What is the breath that you enjoy the most? Another way is what Tawi was pointing to, tending the ox by gently saying no to distractions. Just saying no. N-O. No is also an acronym that I use for noting and observing. So you can just say no to distractions by noting and observing them. Another way is, uh, this is a Zen way. I love this story, once upon a time, I don't know when, Gil might remember when, there was a Zen master named Zuigan. And his way of practicing was like this. He would periodically call out his own name. He'd say, Trudy? And then he would answer himself, Yes, yes. And then he'd ask, Are you here? And then he'd answer himself, Yes, yeah, I'm here, I'm here. And then he'd say, Do not be deceived by others. So this is a kind of koan. What did he mean by that? Do not be deceived by others. He meant, you know, don't be so captivated by all the things that appear in your mind that you forget to gently tend that ox and say no to them as distractions and get carried away by them. And he meant also, don't be deceived into thinking that they are other than yourself. Now, this calling out, we're in silence, but you could do it innerly. Just ask yourself, check in from time to time. Hello? earth to you. Are you here? 
and then to remind yourself not to get so caught by appearances, not to get so identified with experience that we make self and other, but just to see it as it arises, lives, moves, has its being, and passes away. And then, from the Buddha, we could ask the Buddha, how did you, Lord Buddha, cross the flood? The flood, the torrent of mind states, of emotions, of thinking, of distractions, of... I don't have to tell you. You've been sitting with it all. How did you, Lord Buddha, cross the flood? Without lingering and without hurrying. When I lingered, I sank. When I hurried, I got swept away. So we have to balance these energies quite delicately so that we're not shutting down or turning away from experience, but if we really linger in it, we'll sink. And if we hurry, we just get tired. We just wear ourselves out. So to get sensitive and relax, just one breath at a time, one step at a time, gently, tenderly, with great care. So now I have a choice point. I have two different endings of this talk, or two continuations of this talk. I really like them both just the same. I couldn't choose. I was hoping that by now it would become clear um, which way to go. So um, I'm going to just launch into one way, and if it doesn't seem to work, we've always got the other way to go. (laughs) So it's kind of a win-win, I think, for all of us here uh, tonight. I know that Achan Sumedho was part of this first month of retreat, that you listened to his Dharma talks on Saturday night. And some of us here were privileged to be able to sit a retreat with him last summer. Achan Sumedho embodies the, so beautifully this gift of using the particular personal experience not denying it at all, but using it as a bridge uh, to the universal. And he teaches us this way how to shift our attention from being caught and lost and identified with the content of experience to the awareness, the mindfulness, the spacious consciousness that knows experience And to do this over and over and over again to the point where the strength of awareness is actually stronger than any emotion that might come up for us. That seems pretty amazing. But um, we have to believe this is possible. His mantra is relax, trust, and open. And he often says when he's naming a feeling, and we can do this, agitation, we're caught in it, we're so agitated. And without denying the truth of that, to be able to say, just to relax and trust in this experience, 
and open to it? How do you trust an experience of agitation or anxiety? By saying, this is what anxiety is. This is what agitation is. Agitation is like this. Anxiety is like this. Just like this. That's all. Lust is like this. Sadness is like this. So we're not denying my sadness, your sadness, the particular personal circumstances of your life, but acknowledging it's also true for everyone. Sadness, this is what it is. It's like this. And doing this brings an experience of acceptance. I remember once, um, this was very early in my practice, I'd made a kind of pilgrimage. I wanted to meet this first Western woman Roshi, um, Kenneth Roshi. So I went to her uh, Zen center, I think it was in Berkeley, and I was told that uh, she would see me, I, you know, I did zazen with them, and then I was told she would see me, but I had to go upstairs to the kitchen to wait for her. And I sat in the kitchen, and I sat in the kitchen, and I sat in the kitchen, half an hour went by, you know, time just went by, and there was a clock in the kitchen, so I could see how much time was going by while I sat there. But over the doorway, the kitchen door, there was a calligraphy and it said, acceptance is the gateless gate. I had a very long time to study that calligraphy (laughs) because nothing else was happening except waiting. And I really pondered, acceptance is the gateless gate. What does this mean? Well, clearly, Acceptance is this, uh, what Marie was talking about, this way in, this gate that we walk through in order to be completely present with experience. Acceptance is that willingness to step outside of our mind house, that familiar nest of opinions about everything. I mean, I knew my job as a Zen student was to wait there patiently, and it wasn't snow or anything, and I didn't have to cut off my arm or anything like that. But at the same time, the time dragged on, and I got impatient, and I wondered, and, you know. But to step outside of the mind house, of our familiar reactivity, patience happens to be my least favorite virtue to cultivate. I don't know about you, but... To step out of the mind house, my first teacher, Desantzin, when we would take um, the precepts with him, he would give us a calligraphy, and it would have our Dharma name, but then it also said, outside of your door is a land of stillness and light. Spring comes, and the grass grows by itself. So acceptance is that gateless gate. We can step outside of the door and see what's there. In this case, after over an hour, 
they came up and told me that she wasn't well, she had a headache, she couldn't see me. I actually never got to meet her because she really did get sick and she died. Maybe not right away, but before I ever got to see her or meet her. Achan Cha says, be the knower of the object, of the experience, not the owner of the object, of the experience. You know, when we're in our mind house, we own it. We categorize it. We analyze it. We know how it fits into the rest of our life. We know how we feel about it, etc. Be the knower and not the owner of the object, of the experience. When we own it, there's so much to do to fix and heal and repair and improve. Um, this is a quote uh, from Achan Cha. He's telling this story um, about, th- this chapter is called My Tooth, My Pillow, and My Coconut. He's telling a story about um, making the decision to go on a kind of pilgrimage called Tudong, very ascetic kind of wandering, and it's a practice that's uh, supposed to be a practice of the utmost simplicity where the monk or the nun goes off to travel and doesn't take any money and doesn't take anything but their eating bowl and, um, and just stands at the mealtime, um, you know, can't ask for any food but just stands and receives what's given. Um, He says, usually you only take your alms bowl and robes and a few essential items, such as a water strainer and a needle and a thread. I thought I didn't have much attachment to possessions and could be content with little. But when I was putting things together to go, I couldn't bear to leave anything behind. I packed a huge bag. It started to look like it would be more than I could carry. Then I thought about my pillow. And I realized I had to have that, too. (laughs) Everything I saw seemed to be mine. And everything seemed so necessary. Even the coconut husk I used to polish the floor. I think you know what he's experiencing. Maybe you even experienced it, packing, to come to retreat. I know I did. I was so happy that I was driving and bringing my car so that I could bring way more stuff (laughs) than if I had been flying and had to fit it all in the weight of the suitcases um, for the airlines. So when we own, you know, it's, it's, it's heavy. It's a heavy load. But when we know, we can just, as Achan Sumedo says, we can let things cease. When you let things cease, what you find is peace. When you let things cease, what you know is peace. So I want to read you a quote from Achan Sumedho. Oh, it's going to be hard. I have Again, some choices here. Okay. This is a quote about acceptance. And, uh, you know, somebody came today and was asking, 
This is a huge subject. I'm not going to... It's a subject for a whole other talk, really, but it's a, it's a really important practice question. Uh, this person was asking about, what about acceptance? And just accepting things and accepting ourselves the way we are. And then what about working on ourselves, purifying the heart, cultivating these um, beautiful qualities of the heart, and strengthening mindfulness, cultivating attention? What about this? What about this? Um, finding this, this balance and which one is true? Again, from the particular personal point of view, yes, we really uh, work with being present, breath by breath, step by step, and uh, drop by drop filling that bucket with mindfulness. And when we're connecting to the universal, oh, this is how it is, it's like this. From that universal point of view, acceptance is the gateless gate. It's very paradoxical. When we're willing to accept things, we can actually let them go. So here he's talking about acceptance. The freedom from suffering that the Buddha talked about isn't in itself an end end to pain and stress. Instead, it's a matter of creating a choice, like Marie was talking about last night. I can either get caught up in the pain that comes to me, attached to it, and be overwhelmed by it, or I can embrace it, I'm adding, accept it, and through, here he says it, through acceptance and understanding, not adding more suffering to the existing pain, the unfair experiences, the criticisms, or the misery that I face. Even after his enlightenment, the Buddha experienced all kinds of horrendous things. His cousin tried to murder him. People tried to frame him, blame him, and criticize him. He experienced severe physical illness. But the Buddha didn't create suffering around those experiences. His response was never one of anger, resentment, hatred, or blame, but one of acknowledgement. And I would add, of acceptance. And Achen Sumedho goes on to say, This has been a really valuable thing for me to know. It's taught me not to ask for favors in life or hope that if I meditate a lot, I can avoid unpleasant experiences. God, I've been a monk for 33 years. Please reward me for being a good boy. I've tried that, and it doesn't work. (laughs) To accept life without making any pleas, that's P-L-E-A, is very liberating because I no longer feel a need to control or manipulate conditions for my own benefit. I don't need to worry or feel anxious about my future. There's a sense of trust and confidence, a fearlessness that comes through learning to trust, to relax, to open to life, to investigate experience rather than resist or be frightened by it. If you're willing to learn from the suffering in life, you'll find the unshakability of your own mind. 
this is why we love mindfulness so much. Because it doesn't matter. The content of experience, whether we're suffering, whether we're in bliss, it doesn't matter. This is the hardest thing to get, I think, or one of them. It's whether we're suffering, whether we're in bliss, there's something to be learned about what it is to be a human being in this life. And this is the point. And this is what we're doing here. So let's just sit for a minute. This is from a prayer that we, a chant that we did in the retreat with Achan Sumedho last summer. I'll just say it to you while you sit. To the Buddha I dedicate this body and life, and in devotion I will walk the Buddha's path of awakening. For me there is no other refuge. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth, may I grow in Buddha's way. By my devotion to the Buddha and the blessings of this practice, by its power, may all obstacles be overcome. To the Dhamma, I dedicate this body and life. And in devotion, I will walk the path of Dhamma. For us, there is no other refuge. The Dhamma is our excellent refuge. By our devotion to the Dhamma and the blessings of this practice, by its power, may all obstacles be overcome. To the Sangha, I dedicate this body and life. And in devotion, I will walk the well-practiced way of the Sangha. For me, for us, there is no other refuge. The Sangha is our excellent refuge. In devotion, I will walk this excellent way of truth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.